I had this, I remember like kind of thinking through, I was drinking and I was doing drugs and I was thinking about like, what would be, you know, a way to die um, that would make an impact, you know, how can I do it? Like, what would be the way to do it? Anyway, I passed out. Um, I did not jump out the window. And I woke up 16 hours later. I'd slept through work. Mm -hmm. And that was the last time I drank or did drugs. Welcome to the Zero Quit Podcast, where I bring you candid conversations with elite athletes, entrepreneurs, specialists, and other creatives. I'm your host, Brock Covington, and through these dialogues, you will hear powerful stories and practical advice that will help you live a more active and intentional life. If you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe and share it with a friend. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to today's podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Cherno. He's a restaurateur, serial entrepreneur, and athlete based in New York City. In addition to managing his various businesses, he's also a husband and father of two. How are you doing, Mike? I'm so well, man. <laughs> my so question, well. yeah, my question with all that you do with food, which we'll get into later, is uh, are you the cook at your house or is your wife cook at all? Well, I think that's a great question. Uh, my wife is an unbelievable cook. Like, yeah? truly, she's, she's a – my kids are so lucky because they've got – They're all eating good. They've got an amazing cook as a mom and – Donna, my wife, cooks pretty much Monday through Thursday, Friday, mm -hmm. because I get home like right before dinner. Um, mm -hmm. And then I am pretty much in charge of cooking on the weekends. I, lo I mean, I love to cook. I love to cook, but I just don't have the time to do it during the week because of work. Yeah, She's like the master chef during the week. And then on the weekends, I give it my best. Yeah, it's hard. I feel like I just try to stick with what I'm good at, which for me is just, okay, handling my breakfast, making, you know, meal prep and some rice, things like that, and helping out where I can. But cooking is one of those things where I find it very fascinating, where it can be like an extreme art form. Because I have a friend of mine that used to spend like three hours prepping the simplest meal. And I would ask him, you know, like, what you're wasting a ton of time. But he found, you know, he found passionate, as I'm sure you do, similar to how I find a lot of passion in taking the time of brewing specialty coffee and brewing home brewing at home rather than popping in a Keurig. So it's just one of those passions and art forms. But yeah, I was curious with all that you do. But I think a, a good way to kick this off would be to ask you how it is growing up in New York, because I believe you're still in New York City, New York native. Uh, and I, I, I always find it kind of curious, what is that upbringing like in a very kind of urban, big city, hectic environment? Yeah. So I'm actually no longer in New York City. I moved okay. out of New York City to upstate New York, or I, maybe, you know, upstate New Yorkers might get offended by that. Mid-state New York, so I'm not like Syracuse, Rochester. Um, I'm in the Hudson Valley, about two and a half hours north of New York City. Gotcha. But I grew up in Manhattan and spent the better part of my adult life in Brooklyn. Growing up in New York City was amazing. I, I have two sons now. Uh, Finley is eight and Dakota will be six in a couple weeks here. And we moved to our upstate house in the beginning of the pandemic. I always thought that I was going to raise my kids in the city. And the reason why is because I am the person I am today because of my upbringing in New mm -hmm. York City. There was a lot of adversity for me growing up. Mm -hmm. I was exposed to a lot of bad news. But similarly... I learned an enormous amount and 
my emotional intelligence and my ability to connect with human beings and read a room and yeah. my work ethic, my hustle, I believe, because it certainly didn't come from my parents, mm -hmm. is, is, is a direct result of my, my, my upbringing in New York City. So it's, it's a cool place because it's the epicenter of culture for the United yeah. States and, and arguably the world, right? Like you can, mm. you, you can eat the best cuisine from, from every nook and cranny on the planet in New York City. Uh, you know, culture really does stand out in New York. And, and there are many, many, not only states around the country, but also countries around the world that want to emulate what happens in New York. Yeah. And so I grew up in that. You know, I grew up in the heart of it, and it made me the guy I am today. So Yeah, it, I wonder what your thought is, too, with raising two sons. Like, how do you balance the, okay, I don't want to be a helicopter parent. Maybe I have them in a nicer suburb. But at the same time, I want them to be exposed to the different cultures and perspectives, like you mentioned, that you get in New York. You know, we know a lot of the same guys, obviously, with the 10,000 teams all in New York City. Right. And I, I look at that city sometimes and I'm like, man, like I get being at the center of everything, but the costs are brutal. The hustle and bustle is like too much for me. But at the same time, there is a lot that you can take away and a lot of growth that can occur from being, you know, immersed that deeply into a city like that? Well, one thing that I'll say is that now that I live in rural New York, mm -hmm. the chances of, of, of my family and I ever moving back to any major city are slim to none. Yeah. We love, I love, um, I love upstate life. I love yeah. having a lot of land. I love having a gym in my garage my cold plunge, my sauna, my barrel sauna, my mm -hmm. my ice barrel, my pool. I mean, I like I built this this sort of dream situation mm -hmm. where I live now. And when I have to go down to the city, which is probably twice a month for once for my podcast where I, sh you know, I shoot down there in a the studio and then mm -hmm. I go down typically one other time for meetings. Um, I'm like ready to get out of there ASAP. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really completely. So I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, and I grew up a little bit out of uh, the main city of Richmond. And uh, just it is kind of interesting hearing too. the older I get, the more people I meet after moving out to Colorado, like just getting the different. Uh, it, it's even it's more than perspective. It's like values. It's way of life of people in let's say the New England region versus the South versus you know Midwest, and you definitely get a, a different sense of uh, different ways that you can shape your life and 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 cultivate exactly what you're you know looking for. Especially if you're talking about living out where you do have a slower pace of living, you can kind of really craft the exact daily routines, which I know routines and habits are big in your life and they're, you know, critical to mine as well. And so I relate to to your perspective of okay, I can have my gym down here in stair or downstairs. I can work out there. That's never gonna get skipped because it's right there convenient for me. I can manage I can manage my businesses from afar or at home, you know, fortunately with technology and how uh, you set up your businesses and all that. So uh I, I can definitely relate and feel the same way. Like I just, the, the urge to be in the city is just not there for me. Although I understand different people's uh, aspirations with that. With entrepreneurship, 
was it always something that felt like it was inevitable for you growing up or was it um, kind of like the only viable path just the way that you were hardwired or was it something you pivoted to later on? I've thought like an entrepreneur for as early as I can remember. I was selling my toys on the corner of 87th Street and 2nd Avenue at five. You know, mm -hmm. I was um, taking the money that I made from dog walking at 10 and 11 and going over to Alex's MVP's card shop and buying packs of cards and comic book grab bags, taking the stuff that I wanted from the decks and then setting up shop outside of the card shop until they kicked me out and Always selling the stuff I didn't want. <laughs> um, you know, I built a dog walking business in my neighborhood. And by the time I was 12, I had been I was walking like 20 or 30 dogs and my parents basically had to put a kibosh to it because I'd get home from school and I'd walk dogs from four o'clock to nine o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. um, so I've always had this um, ethic of wanting to make do and create. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I got to say that, my you know, though my relationship with my father was really hard, super tough relationship. He was an entrepreneur as well, unfortunately not very successful, but he was always trying to, he was an electrician, he had his own little business, he would do lighting design, electrician work, he was a master electrician, and uh, and so I think I kind of got that, that like, you've got to make for yours mentality mm -hmm. for my pops, potentially, um, but being an entrepreneur, as far as I'm concerned, is a blessing and a curse, right? Because you, you, you have the ability to really create community, create jobs, create an, a culture for people to thrive in, but mm -hmm. it's very, very stressful. It is, it is yeah. arguably one of the most stressful paths one could take because no matter what, as the captain of the ship, no matter how many people you have on your team, you're responsible. You're accountable. Yeah. You never yeah, I always, close. Yeah. I always tell people that it's like the good thing is it's all on you. And then the bad thing is it's all on you. So like you're like you mentioned, the captain of your ship. You kind of control that destiny. But yeah, if you don't if you don't want to work on the weekends, you don't want to work the extra hours then nothing gets done. And so it is a lot of stress. It's a lot of like you mentioned, uncertainty as well. You don't have a guaranteed set of hours where you go in. You stay there as long as you can. You clock out. You're guaranteed to get your paycheck. You know, if you're not doing the necessary work, if you're not finding the necessary clientele, making the sales, planning the marketing campaigns, taking the next step to scale the business, uh, then you know you you really are just screwing yourself in that instance. Um, and and it's funny you reference your father uh, being the catalyst for you being an entrepreneur because mine was a bit i think in the same way i grew up very young uh well okay that, that sounds funny <laughs> tautology there grew up very young but i grew up in the same way where i was very much uh innovative always creating and uh you know i wanted to be a photographer then i wanted to do videography and then and be a film director then i wanted to do this do that start this and uh i, I kind of carried that as i got older as well and uh my both my parents kind of always worked in like the corporate world but I think from what I saw, how the corporate world kind of chews you up and spits you out. I had a 
kind of confirmation that this isn't what I wanted to do, even more than just looking at corporate life and saying that's not for me, because I would see my father get laid off in like 08, 09 area. I'd see him kind of get screwed on a promotion or sales just because of corporate politics. And I realized that I wanted to take life in my own hands and have that own control. Um, and, and again, entrepreneurship is that double-edged sword because you do have that control, but then you also have that risk. So with the businesses that you ended up starting, what was your first baby? My first baby, my first, the, 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 well, the first business business I launched was the meatball shop. And uh, okay. that was my first, I mean, full transparency, mm -hmm. right? I've got nothing to hide here. Growing up in New York, knowing that I wanted to make money because mm -hmm. it was the only way I was going to get money. Once I became 14, 15 years old, I found out that I could sell weed and um, eventually other things. Mm -hmm. And that's really, that was like, honestly, my first foray into real, like understanding business. Mm -hmm. um, and that was obviously not a great way to get exposed to, <laughs> to business, but it, you learn it, the it, principles. <laughs> it, it's my, it's my, it's my story. It's my truth, yeah. you know? And, um, and so I made a, a hell of a lot of money when I was young doing that. And, but you know, I had a real coming to the light moment when I was 23 years old, where everything in my life would change from mm -hmm. the life of addiction and that stuff to sobriety and fitness and wellness. And, and that's when mm -hmm. everything changed. But when I was 29, I opened up the meatball shop in the Lower East Side of New York City. And without a question of a doubt, that is my first, that is what built my platform. So where did this passion for food specifically, because I know you have multiple restaurants and different kind of food ventures overall, where did this passion for food originate from? The first job, the first legitimate job I was able to get outside of dog walking was at a restaurant. I walked mm -hmm. in there. My Actually, my, my friend Daniel Holzman, who was a year older than me, he was working in the delivery department of this vegan restaurant on 76th Street and 3rd Avenue. I was kind of like part-time um, delivering videos, VHS videos, for this place called Couch Potato Video after school mm -hmm. on rollerblades. And Daniel said, hey, man, like, we're right up the street. Why don't you come in and see if they want you know, another delivery boy for the vegan restaurant. So mm -hmm. I was like, great. And so I, I rolled up in there literally on my rollerblades and uh, I, I said, Hey, do you guys, you know, do you guys need another delivery person? And they hired me. And, and I, so I, 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 once I like got a job in a restaurant, I very quickly was like, this is where I want to be like this, this, this feels really good. Um, I probably delivered food for four to six months. And was it the me... fast pace of the like service industry that you like too? I think it was the escape from my um, my apartment where I grew mm -hmm. up, where I was you know having a really hard time with my my father. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was the fact that I was around the older people, and I felt like I could really absorb and learn and grow mm -hmm. from these older people. That were it was exciting for me, mm -hmm. and also. I like love making people happy. That's mm -hmm. like, it's just ingrained in my DNA, like making others happy, being of service to others is like something that I really just, I guess, inherently enjoy. And mm -hmm. so 
the, the, the world of restaurants, like every time you do something for somebody in a restaurant, they say thank you most of the time, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like you're, 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 you're being of service there over and over and over again, if you're doing the right thing. And so I, you know, they, 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 after about four or six months, something like that of delivering food, they asked me if I wanted to hop in the kitchen, step in as a dishwasher, I did that. Mm-hmm. And then I got to do some prep cooking and then some cooking. And then they asked me if I wanted to go out onto the main dining room floor when I was like 14 or 15, something like that. And then mm-hmm. I started my, you know, my restaurant career, just like I, I worked in a bunch of different restaurants in the back of the house and in the front of the house, both both uh, at the same time, more predominantly more front of the house work, because I really did love being up there with the guests and making them happy. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think my passion for food, I mean, we all love food, right? Yeah, I mean, we all love of food. course. So it was easy for me to really sort of immerse myself into the world of, of, of food. I, mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to work in some restaurants that had some of the best food in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I really became infatuated with, with cooking, with eating, with trying new things, with wine. I'd be, you know, I'd be in my, you know, before I could actually legally drink, I was, mm-hmm. I became like this wine connoisseur and I really, really was able to appreciate all sorts of different wines from yeah. all over the world. And then I worked in a restaurant, uh, eventually would be the last restaurant I worked in before I opened the meatball shop. I worked there for almost nine years, had the greatest wine list in all of New York City, Italian wine list in all of New York City. And I got to manage that list before I got sober. And so I was, I was like really in charge of, you know, all these crazy wines, the food at this restaurant was, was amazing. And, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so, you know, I just, I became totally enamored with food and beverage, um, because of my experience in the restaurant world. Yeah. It sounds like you had a little bit of taste of everything from dishwashing, delivery, cooking, serving. So it's like a good, uh, yeah, good whole swath of experience in, uh, in that service industry. So with all the businesses you manage, and then also, uh, trying to, you know, handle your family, grow a family uh, as you got older. How have you known when to sell, uh, delegate, and manage your businesses differently over the years? Great question. So when I started when I started at the meatball shop, when we opened the meatball shop, my partner Daniel and I, we opened in February of 2009, coming out of the pit of a recession. We wanted to open up a recession-proof restaurant, the meatball shop, mm-hmm. super inexpensive, vibes were off the chart. I got a real crash course in business. However, mm-hmm. at that age, I didn't understand the difference between working hard and working smart, mm-hmm. um, working long hours and working smart hours. I just worked. I thought I just needed to be there all the mm-hmm. time. And and I was married. I got married in 2007. I opened up the restaurant in 2009. And I didn't take a day off yeah. for over 18 months. And I worked on average 16 to 18 hours a day. And my wife finally said to me, this is not going to work. I don't, I haven't seen you in almost two years. This is, this is impossible. Like, I don't know what you expect me to do, but like, I can't build a life with you this way. 
mm-hmm. and I needed to hear that because I just didn't know. I honestly can, you know, say I didn't know what I was doing. I was just yeah, there. entrepreneur way. Yeah, yeah just I like get it. <laughs> head down, grinding hard because the restaurant took off like crazy. And we opened up five more in two and a half years. And mm-hmm. so it was just really intense. And uh, it, it, it was like we were we were all over the media. I mean, on Good Morning America, the Today Show, we were on, you know, live on Jay Leno cooking meatballs on Chelsea Handler and, you know, all sorts of mm-hmm. crazy stuff. I mean, they, they made a TV show with us and it was just insanity. And uh, it was overwhelming. It was a lot, you know, and we had a business that we started with 20,000 bucks. The two of us are life savings and mm-hmm. quickly became a multi-million dollar business with lots of media, right? So we were mm-hmm. all over the place. And uh, my wife said, this can't, this won't, this won't last. Like, I, I, I love you, but, you know, I, I'm not going to sacrifice my, 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 my life for your business. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you're right. You're right. And that was the first time where I really got, had like, you know, smart smacked into me. Yeah. And decided that's when we, that's when we, you know, said, okay, we're going to buy. I said, if I'm in New York City, I am going to be at the restaurant. Like, I know that I have, a, I'm, it's, it's almost like an addiction. You know, mm-hmm. I'm an addictive person. I have an addictive personality. And I loved being in the restaurants. And I love my wife, of course, more than anything and my kids. Mm-hmm. But I really also, at that time in my life, I was addicted to work. I was like totally hooked on it, totally addicted. I loved every second of it, even though it was hard as hell. Brutal. Yeah. But I loved it. And so I said, you're right. And we need to get out of the city on the weekends because if I if I'm in the city, I'm going to work. I know it. I mean, it's going to be so hard for me not to go. They're going to be calling me. It's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. And so we got out. We got a house upstate where we live now. And this is in 2012. And then um, I said to my business partner, "Hey, man, I, I can't do this the way I'm doing it anymore. I have to. I have to like literally save my marriage." I'm not going to be working on the weekends. I'm leaving on Friday nights and I'm coming back on Sunday night and that's what I'm doing. And if the restaurant suffers, then I will obviously change my tune, but I don't think it will. I think that we'll be okay and I'll be able to save my marriage and we'll both be able to figure out how to have this balance because there was Mm -hmm. no balance before this. And uh, that's what we did. And I really learned how to, how to um, balance the life of a married human being who wanted to have a family and also work my ass off. And so the question I guess was like, when do you know when to sell? My piece of advice for any entrepreneur listening to this podcast is if you, um, if you are, if you have an opportunity to mitigate some risk and take some cash out, of your business because somebody is interested in potentially purchasing the whole thing or the majority of it. Mm-hmm. My advice is, and some people will disagree with me, always take the money. Always. Yeah. And the reason why for me is because you can hold on tight and think it's going to be worth more and worth more and worth more. And that's great. And you should always have that mentality. However, you never know. Something like a global pandemic can come in and destroy everything before you had a chance to mitigate some risk and take some money out. And that happened. And a lot of my colleagues 
went belly up a lot. Yeah. And I didn't. I sold equity at Meatball Shop in 2014. I sold equity in Seymour's in 2019, November. Good call. Right before the <laughs> pandemic. And, and, and that's because, well, there was a couple of, obviously, there was, there was more to do with it, right? Like, yeah, of course. You know, Daniel and I didn't see eye to eye on how we wanted to scale the meatball shop. We were battling hard. And I said, man, like, this is going to get ugly. Like, I'll take a back seat. You guys buy some equity for me. I'm comfortable mm-hmm. going to create another business. Um, and it was perfect because at 32 years old, 32, 33, you know, I, I took out a check that I never in my life ever thought was even possible for me. Never. Yeah. No one in my family had uh, money, you know, and, and, I, and I was able to make a decision that, that literally changed my life. And, um, and it's not like I'm like sitting on billions of dollars, but I took out a check that was life changing for me at the time. And mm-hmm. I parlayed it and I put a bunch of money into my new business, Seymour's, was able to create another business, except this time I knew that I was going to run it for five years and try to sell equity to the partners. And I took on a partner about a year in, really smart guy, um, helped me scale the company to six restaurants. And in 2019, I sold that. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I began the process. I, I, I originally, Creatures of Habit was going to be a restaurant and I was going to use the restaurant of Creatures of Habit as an incubator for a line of consumer packaged goods because I knew that I didn't want to stamp out restaurants anymore. I'd, I'd, I'd opened up 14 restaurants uh, over the last uh, over the you know the last decade uh, before mm-hmm. Creatures of Habit, and I said, man, like you know, I love creating business, I love creating culture, I love creating community, finding great smart people to surround myself with, but I don't love building restaurant after restaurant after restaurant. So let me figure yeah. out a way to like use my skill set in the world of restaurants to parlay into another business. And so I said, I'm going to create this awesome space in Brooklyn, healthy, like healthy restaurant with a vibe because New York City, strangely, does not have any like great restaurants that are healthy for people like you and me, but that you want to hang out in. Most healthy restaurants in New York City, like look like healthy restaurants, smell like healthy restaurants, typically like tapestries on the wall. Yeah, Yeah. Everybody walking out smells like patchouli. (laughs) Um, you know, so like I wanted to create this healthy restaurant with a vibe and then, and then make products in there, put them on the wall as you walk out for people to potentially purchase if they were interested, seeing what people were grabbing and then, and then invest money into those products and and create a CPG brand. And, uh, when the, when the pandemic hit that plan and I had investors lined up, I had a space, I had the whole thing when Mm -hmm. that, when the, when the, the pandemic hit that whole entire business model fell face first you know it had I, there was nothing i could do i had to pull back i had to pull out of the deal and and um tell my investors i'm sorry you know i've got to rethink this yeah and they were like you're right you know like i was gonna put you know half a million dollars into into this business myself and um and so i i said i've got to rethink this whole project and we moved out of new york city to our house upstate temporarily we didn't think it was going to be a full you know full-on move we didn't know nobody knew what was going on in the world with the pandemic Mm -hmm. and i used it as as discovery time an opportunity for me to like for the first time in 11 years like really take a breath you know um i i had been working on meatball shop from 2008 
and I had sold my equity in, in, in Seymour's at the end of 2019. So it was 11 years of just like hard balls to the wall, nonstop building. And mm -hmm. um, I said, I want this, I'm going to give myself three to six months to figure out what to do. And I said, I'm going to go, I'm going to hire an executive coach to work with me on this. So I'm really going to actually do it right. And I'm going to go on runs on long runs upstate without music, without podcasts, without headphones, and with a little pad in my pocket. And this is how I tend to come up with creative ideas. I'll Old go on these on long... What? Old school pen on paper? Old school pen on paper because I didn't want to have my phone with me. Yeah, I get that. Um, and so I had a little pad, go on these runs, and try to come up with ideas. And... Uh, I've been working with this this really amazing coach and very good friend. Her name is Megan Dolce. She owns a company called Ripe. It's a, it's a coaching um, business. And uh, she works with pro athletes and entrepreneurs. And, you know, she's just really great at what she does. And she's been a friend of mine for a long time. And she basically convinced me that the restaurant was just a medium for my creative outlet. Um, I, I'm an entrepreneur that is creative and convincing. And I did not need a restaurant to build my next brand. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like, that was like a totally new thought process for me. I was like, wow, like I've been in the restaurant business since I'm 12. Can I just create a business in a totally new industry, new arena? Like I've been playing football forever. Can I just go pick up a golf club and just start swinging the the club and, 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 be, and be as effective yeah and um she told me i could she like gave me the confidence that i really wanted and needed at the time that i knew i had but i just i had been doing i've been i've been rep you know very repetitious in the world of restaurants and mm -hmm. so i was on this run and I was thinking about what would be the most authentic to me. I knew that CPG was going to be what I was going to do because eventually Creatures of Habit was going to be a CPG business, you know, after the restaurant. And so I said, what is the most authentic? Like, what can I, what can I stand behind 100%? It has to be real. It can't be something that I just come up with. Like, and when I got sober, uh, in 2005, uh, excuse me, 2004, I was 23. I had got connected with two guys that took me on as their younger brother. These two guys mm -hmm. were, uh, 10 years, my senior, they were covered in tattoos. They were sober. They were Muay Thai kickboxing competitors and coaches. And they were sent by God, honestly, like I, I don't know how they swooped in so quickly. I know that I reached out to my friend Karen. Karen was dating Marcus. Marcus spoke to Gavin and they both came immediately. Mm -hmm. Marcus really sort of sat down with me that first day that I reached out my hand for help. And he said, you know, this is what we're going to do. And they both kind of tag teamed it. And they said, we're going to give you a pathway to better. You're a, you're a, you know, I had, I had overdosed on heroin two weeks before this, right? I was mm -hmm. really knocking on death's door. I mean, I was like not the guy I am today. Um, and so 
I was desperate to change. And they said, you know, there's only one way this is going to work. And I said, what is that one way? And they said, listen to every fucking word we say. And I was like, all right. <laughs> Can I, I mean, put a pin in that? So you said so many good things I want to spin off of that I had questions on. But I also was viewing you as kind of like one of those old school uh, wind up car toys where you wind it up and just let it go. And I was like, I just want to let you, let you get your, let you go. But um, since you bring up sobriety, I want to circle back to that. Um, so have you ever heard of uh, David Foster Wallace or uh, any of his books? No. So he's a uh, more modern uh, writer, author. Uh, he passed away in uh, 08. But uh, his, his popular book, his claim to fame, is this book called Infinite Jest. came out in 96. What is it? And um, Infinite Jest, it's a, it's a tank of a book, but it's, uh, it's got a lot of philosophical undertones in it, which is why I was drawn to it. But um, very satirical, hilarious book, talks a lot about uh, overconsumption, overconsumption of entertainment specifically, um, very uh, critical of society and different elements of it. But specifically, why, why it relates to you and why I put this quote down that I want to read is because a lot of the themes and characters um, take place around a uh, recovery house and drug abuse and things like that. And there was a quote that uh, when I knew our, our episode, our podcast, our chat was coming up, I was like, wow, this quote would be good to just hear your perspective. So let me read it out real quick, and then I have a question to kind of follow up. But he's basically talking about the grip that substance abuse has on, uh, or the characters talking about the grip that substance abuse has on you. So... It starts like this. The grinning root white face of your worst nightmares and the face is your own face in the mirror now. It's you. The substance has devoured or replaced and become you. Then later on he goes, you are behind bars. You are in a cage and you can only and you can see only bars in every direction. You are in the kind of hell of a mess that either ends lives or turns them around. And so my question as I, someone who's never been uh, under the, the grip of substance abuse before, can you describe that kind of grip, that kind of control uh, that substance abuse can have over an individual that had over you? And what was that turning point for you where you said uh, that, you know, this was either going to, you were either going to burn in this hell or, or turn around away from it? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the best way to describe that is to talk to you about the last day of my addiction use. Mm -hmm. Um so I had been, I started using drugs when I was about, probably I would say, maybe I tried smoking marijuana at 12. I, at least, I, I mean, I'm positive I did, but I didn't really like start using it until I was yeah. 13. And by the end of my 13th year, I was already into harder drugs. By 14, I was completely a reckless kid I was mm -hmm. not I was like rarely sleeping in my parents house either spending all night in Central Park or sleeping at older friends places I was going to raves every weekend I was selling drugs using drugs and I I was living the I, I thought at my at that time living the best life mm -hmm. um, those party drugs you know went on I didn't really drink at that age I was like it was much easier to get drugs so it kind of went on until I was about 18 when the drugs really sort of came down to uh, cocaine and, and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And I did that for a while until it became really ugly and I was up for days and somebody had introduced me to pills and heroin. 
and that was sort of the, the end of the road for me um, because it got really bad really fast. And uh, I was 23. I It was July. Uh, I got sober August 2nd. So it was probably the, the third week of July, summer of August, summer of 2004. It was hot. I had been in someone's apartment for days. Um, and I was with a female... Uh, we were doing heroin and like it, it, it's so hard for me to even think about these this time because not because it's like it, it feels bad because I, it just doesn't feel real. Feels like someone else. Yeah, someone else. Totally yeah. different human. Like a story is being written about this person that I'm sort of telling um, mm -hmm. like a story, like a book. And, uh, and so I remember being sitting on a bed naked, there was a mirror on the headboard. And when you're high, you know, if you catch yourself in the mirror, it's, it's totally normal to, for your face to be like pasty white, like my shirt. Mm -hmm. But I look to the right, I remember catching a, 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 a glimpse of myself in the mirror. And my from my head to my toes, I was white, like my shirt. And uh, I, 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 it scared the life out of me, literally. I stood up in fear. I fell down and immediately blacked out. And I remember coming in and out of consciousness. And the girl that I was with, I, I remember telling her to call the ambulance because I was dying. And she refused to call the ambulance. She was screaming. She was crying. She was terrified. She was also very high. She somehow, someway got me over to the bathtub. I got myself into the bathtub and then she turned me on my back and turned on the cold mm. water and just the cold water just running on my body um, from the shower head. And uh, I came, I was coming in and out of consciousness and somehow I, you know, by the grace of, of uh, the universe and God, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. I didn't die that day. Um, and so I remember about three hours, four hours later, leaving that apartment in the, in the evening, um, and saying to myself, I mean, I was sober because I was terrified. Saying to myself, I'll never do this again. This is it. This is it. And I found myself that night, later on that night, um, getting high again. And so uh, I, I decided at that point that I was not afraid of death anymore. Because I had almost died. And I knew that I was coming to the end. And... This is the way I was going to live. I pro I promised myself I was not going to do it again, and I could not stop uh, mm -hmm. that later on that night. And so I went on a two-week death march, basically. And uh, it was a Monday. I had been up for two days. I was with two friends who are still now actually friends. One of them is sober a long time. One of them has somehow figured it out and is not really doing what he used to do. But they were like, all right, man, we're going home. And I knew that I had had, I had work in about three or four hours. It was like 6 a.m. on a Monday morning, mm -hmm. August 1st or August 2nd, August 1st. or August, I think it was August 1st. And uh, we, were in my we were on the roof of my building. They left, and I walked downstairs, and I still had a bunch of warm beer and, and some, some drugs. And I walked into my bedroom I had, a, I had like a wall mirror, like a closet mirror. Mm -hmm. And I, I looked at myself in the mirror. And the only thought that I could come up with was, I hate you. I hate you more than anything. You are worthless, useless. You're useless. You should die. Mm -hmm. You should just jump out the window. You should die. 
you have there's there's no hope for you and um i had this i remember like kind of thinking through i was drinking and i was doing drugs and i was thinking about like what would be you know a way to die um that would make an impact you know how can i do it like what would be the way to do it anyway i passed out um i did not jump out the window and i woke up 16 hours later i'd slept through work mm-hmm and that was the last time I drank or did drugs. And um, my boss fired me. I begged my, for my job back. My job was the only thing I had tethering me to life, any sort of normalcy. And he said, if you come to the restaurant at 8 o'clock in the morning and you clean the restaurant with the porters, you, you call me when you get here and you get sober, you can have your job back. But if I find out that you're doing a single drug or drinking a sip of alcohol, or you show up one minute after eight o'clock, you're done. And I was grateful for that. I called mm-hmm. up my friend Karen. She introduced me to Marcus. Marcus came to meet me that night. Uh, I went to an AA meeting that day. And, uh, you know. 19 years later. Yeah, 19 years later, I'm, I'm here to tell you that I have an amazing, unbelievable beyond my wildest dreams life yeah straight up with a with a woman who i love and whoa emotions didn't think that was gonna happen (laughs) and um and two sons yeah can't ask for much more Mm. well in the same book you know along with again talking about the recovery house and all that they they reference how you have to surrender your will with sobriety and i liked how you kind of talked about these friends assisted you and told you, hey, you just got to listen to what we say, regardless. And it, they, they kind of talk about that in the book. And it's funny, I'm getting this this perspective out of, a, out of a fictional book, but it just, I guess, speaks to the novel more than anything. But it, he points out that a lot of these platitudes and these cliches that you hear one day at a time or, or these different things we hear brick by brick, right? It could be in fitness or it could be in, in AA meetings. Um, a lot of them are kind of these like empty phrases that don't really like teach you anything or mean anything, um, but they do have value. As much as they seem kind of trite and pointless, they do have value. And they and, and at some point you just have to kind of surrender your will and whatever ego you have and say, I'm just going to follow what I'm told. I'm going to stick to this. I'm going to even if I'm um, you know, an atheist or agnostic, I'm going to submit to uh, this God or this uh you know, natural force that AA tells me about, whatever I can do, I'm going to grab at whatever I can grab at to pull myself out of this hole. Uh, is that what a lot of what you experience in AA? I mean, yes. The I think the I think it's a culmination of a lot of things, right? I think nobody nobody gets sober by force. You know, sure. the truth of the matter is, is that like. You either come to to terms with the fact that you have to throw in the towel because it's just not going to work for you anymore, um, or you die. Mm-hmm. That's that that's the two paths for it's like, even if you go to jail, even if somebody ties you to a radiator, even if your wife leaves you, your kids hate you, your job you know that you had you know fires you like, and you don't want to get sober, you don't get sober. So it's either you change because you come to terms with the fact that like you have to and you you're ready or you die miserable. Mm-hmm. 
you know? And so along with that is a relationship with a power greater than yourself, right? Because like, if you think that you're the one in charge mm -hmm. and you play the tape and you're like, well, for the last, whatever, for me, it was 11 years of active addiction. Like I was in charge that whole time. I had no belief in anything else. I, I didn't ask anybody's permission. I wasn't like mm -hmm. looking for anybody to tell me what to do. Left to my own devices, I was an addict and an alcoholic ready to die, um, literally. And so I had to like come to terms with the fact that like I don't make the greatest decisions alone. I need a community of people that can help carry me along with my willingness to want to change and a belief in God. And that for me is like, I'm not a religious guy. I've got no problem with religion, but mm -hmm. I have a very, very strong relationship with God. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a God that I don't even, I have zero idea as to what it is. I don't care. Mm -hmm. It's not a thing. It's just not me. You know, like it is ego smashing. My ego is just not my amigo. And I learned that in a, you know, in AA. And I don't really talk much about AA because you know, it is an anonymous program. Of course. Um, yeah. But the truth is that the sober community is what carried and carries me. Mm -hmm. And the fitness community is what keeps me alive. Fitness saved my life. And um, that's why I'm such a maniac in the world of, of fitness, because I was introduced to fitness from those two guys very early on. And, um, you know, I'm not me without it. Yeah. So essentially it sounds like, yeah, surrendering your own kind of will and hedonistic way of living and pivoting that towards a greater power, a community, a, uh, a group, a set of people, a different set of values. Uh, one question I had for you was because, you know, uh, and I relate a lot to this, like I said earlier, is this, uh, infatuation with habits and routine and structure and rigidity in our lives. I wonder if you feel like people, and maybe you can't speak broadly, but at least personally, if you erased addiction or if you just pivoted it towards more productive set of behaviors. I don't think I've erased addiction. Um, I think that it is alive and well in me. And mm -hmm. uh if I give it an opportunity to breathe a little bit, it'll rear its head, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I think what I've done is repurpose my energy towards attacking things in a positive way. I've always been an offense, offensive person. I've mm -hmm. always like attacked life. I attack life today as a father, as a husband, as a business person, as an athlete, um, I really do like, like I say that I attack it because that is the, that is the mentality that I have. You know, I believe that like, if you want something, you have to attack it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so when I found out that you can't attack when you're dead, you know, and when I found out that I was dying, I said, man, I got to figure out another plan because this, mm -hmm. this one is not working. And I was introduced to these guys and they gave me these guys, these guys beat the crap out of me, um, mm -hmm. literally. And they taught me how to get back up. And I didn't know that like I had it in me to do that. Um, but in the rings of Muay Thai, I learned that I can get the same feeling of 
winning and owning my sort of life that I thought I had with drugs and alcohol mm-hmm. with accomplishing <laughs> positive habits, you know? And that is really what it is. It's like, that is what creatures of habit is. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a sim, it's a symbol of, of owning your life, right? Like you can allow other people and your, and your environment to dictate what happens in your life, or you can own it and you can make decisions on a daily basis that compounded will create greatness. That is what all greatness is, right? It's just like, it's repetition of great decisions done over and over and over again. And it can sound monotonous. However, if you do it over and over and over again, it is always going to change. It is going Mm -hmm. to get better and better and better. I sat down with my five-year-old son a couple of weekends ago, and we have a basketball hoop in our driveway. And he said, Dad, I want to play basketball. I was like, great, let's play basketball. I was like, stand under the net. And he was like, what? And I was like, stand under the net. I was like, we're going to shoot from that spot 100 times. He was Mm -hmm. like, what? I don't want to shoot from this spot. I was like, no, 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 we're going to do that. And then we can play. But we're going to do this whenever you want to play basketball. We'll do it 100 times. And you'll just get better and better and better and better and better and better and better. I mean, it's just like that is is what it takes. That's what it is, right? Like, you just do the same thing over and over again. And you get better and better and better at it. Yeah, it's having a taste for the monotony as much as you do the... uh the exciting results at the finish line. So I think that's a perfect transition into Creatures of Habit. And I think you've kind of already answered what the story is behind it, the origin of Creatures of Habit. But I wonder, how is your, speaking of attack, how is your approach to this business? As I'm assuming it was one of the first uh, CPG type businesses where it's not a physical presence. It's not an actual restaurant. It's not a service, but it is this product. It is heavily, or at least you know, almost solely, uh, online retail. What was your approach going into this business, uh, and how new was that kind of uh, venture compared to other ones you've had? I mean, my story is what it is. You know, um, habits almost killed me, mm-hmm. and I transitioned into habits that helped me every day and uh they help me live my best you know everybody says live your best life be the best version of yourself for me what i've learned because of my story was that like every single day you get an opportunity to live your best life and typically Mm -hmm. it starts with how you start your day if you open your eyes and close them again you're sort of giving up <laughs> you know like right you've away lost. yeah yeah, yeah. not that you lost but like no, you're like kind of just like Matt, i'm gonna throw in the towel on this one like mm-hmm. you get an opportunity every single day and unfortunately we're not guaranteed tomorrow mm-hmm. you know you're guaranteed right now right here right now so if you really attack the moment right you know you wake up in the morning you open your eyes you 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 take a breath in and you smile and you understand that today could be the best day of your life depends Mm -hmm. on what you choose to do with it you know and i know that that sounds woo woo but it's true and so i wanted to be able to use my story of structure and consistency you know when those guys 
the reason why I started with meal one, with the, which is with the protein oatmeal, is because mm-hmm. when I got sober, they I didn't know what I, to eat. I hadn't eaten. They were like, what do you eat? And I was I don't remember what I said, but I'm sure it was something like mozzarella sticks and, uh, you know, rigatoni pasta. Like, yeah, you know, and they were like, OK, so they wrote me this plan. The plan was wake up as early as you can, uh, get out of your bed, immediately drop on the floor and ask God for help. It could just be like, God help me today. Mm-hmm. Uh, get up, take a piss, put on your running sneakers and go for either a walk or a run. It could be a block. It could be 10 miles. We just want you to get out and move your body first thing in the morning. Like, don't give yourself any time to think. Just get up mm-hmm. and get out and move your body. As soon as you get back, have a big bowl of oatmeal. It's easy to make. It's satiating. It's healthy. You can add whatever you want to it, and it doesn't cost you a lot of money. And I was like, okay. And then they said, right after that, you're going to go to a sober community meeting. Great. Go to a sober community meeting. Right after that, they said, you're going to come and meet us at this gym, this Muay Thai gym, and we're going to kick your ass. And we're going to mm-hmm. show you how to be uh, responsible and build confidence and have dignity and um, understand that getting back up is, you know, like these guys were just like these like crazy mentors for me. And then they said, right after we're done kicking your ass and teaching you how to kickbox, we're going to um, you sh- you're going to go have chicken and broccoli for lunch. You're going to go home. You're going to take a nap and then you're going to go to work at night. And I was like, OK, great. Um, and, uh, you know, and that and that's what I did. That's what I did. And they, they, they just said rinse and repeat. So I knew that that story was authentic to me. I'd been eating oatmeal. I, I, I've, been, I've been eating oatmeal as my first meal of the day till this very morning since those guys told me that. And mm-hmm. so when I was on that run thinking about what I was going to do, it just popped in my head. I said, my oatmeal. You know, I've been making this oatmeal every single morning. It's the first thing I put into my body, either pre-workout or post-workout, depending if I'm training faster or not. I'm in the best shape of my life. I've been in great shape for many years. I feel totally fueled in the morning. Um, And if I could figure out a way to make this concoction of gluten-free oats, plant-based protein, chia seeds, flax seeds, pumpkin seeds, and pink Himalayan salt, and then on the side of that every morning, I had my omega-3 fatty acids, my probiotics, my digestive enzymes, and my vitamin D3. That was sort of like my morning setup. I said, Mm -hmm. if I could figure out a way to get all this into a pouch, that people can make overnight or instant. Um, I think I've got a business here and I can also tell my story that you can change at any time and you never know what the catalyst is going to be. But if you can commit to one great habit mm-hmm. every day, the chances of that growing to two and three and four and five, you know, there's there's a lot of stigma right now in the world of the social medias where it's like, oh, God, these morning routine people and these long yeah. lists of habits. And, and like, that's all good and great. You could say whatever you want. I could tell you this. If I hit my shit in the morning, the stuff that I like to do every morning, the habit stacking stuff, mm-hmm. I am a better person. It yes. does. I don't yeah. care if it bothers you. I don't care if you think it's stupid. I don't care if it makes you feel stressed out mm-hmm. thinking about it. You don't have to do it. You don't. You can just wake up in the morning, have a glass of water, do some stretching, and that might be just great for you. For mm-hmm. me, it's a lot of things to make me feel at my peak because I want to be peaking. I want to attack the day. I want to live my yeah. best life every single day. I really do. Well, I, th- then, I think yeah. I think people, yeah, it, social media is full of people that just want to nitpick anybody that has 
any kind of successful routine that maybe works for them. And uh, it's just, it's an easy, lazy take, but I think it comes from a place of people might say, well, I'm not a morning person. Now I'm like you, I'm very rigid in my routine. My morning routine makes my entire day. It's, it's, it's possibly the, the block of the day I look forward to the most. It sets me up for success. Um, all of that, I really try and center my workout, reading, all these different things around the morning because I'm not distracted by the day's work, all of that, uh, and it really sets the tone for the day. But I think people are missing the concept that it doesn't have to be Mike's 12 list of things he does in the morning or Brock's you know, exact routine. It's about figuring what works out for you and also at what time of the day works for you. You know, you might not be a morning person. My wife likes to sleep in. I don't give her hell for it because happy wife, happy life, right? <laughs> but different people have different times of the day that they're going to be more productive or more uh, you know, fixated around. So it might be an evening routine that is foundational for you, but it's just the same principles apply is just assessing uh, what are those little things that you can do to to not only just be more productive and be these kind of hyper-productive, uh, lifeless machines, uh, but but have that rigidity, have that structure, because as we, you know, we've kind of exemplified in this uh, podcast is just habits, structures, these are the things that we can do unconsciously and subconsciously that just make us better human beings and help us get a lot more done and, and, and live more you know successful and flourishing lives. Um, I like specifically that Creatures of Habit, and I've gotten to experience it with uh, our you know, mutual friend Anthony Diaz and other athletes as well, is the, like you mentioned, everything's all in one. It's the convenience of it, and I think it's meeting people where they're at because we live in this fast-paced life where everything has to be fast, and immediate, right, and enjoyable. And what does this product do? Well, it, it's it's fast, it's simple, it's on one package, it's convenient. It's first thing in the morning, they can just throw it in there, mix it with water if need be, and it's enjoyable. How do you view competition and overnight oats and these different brands that pop up, particularly not just from an apples to apples ingredient comparison, but also because it sounds like how you position creatures of habit is more of a as a lifestyle and a mission rather than just, hey, we're a superior product alone, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. So I'm grateful for, uh, you know, Overnight Oats and um, and any other person in the world of, uh, you know, person with, with a similar, you know, product. Mm-hmm. First of all, meal one is just the first skew for Creatures of Habit, right? So it's not going to be just meal one, which is the Overnight Oats product. It is, um, we'll have multiple, we'll have somewhere between three and six products um, that will be an ally for you in all day parts of your life so that mm-hmm. you can feel like, you know, you have a really healthy but delicious uh, high protein product um, that'll get you through to the next meal, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, we're not in direct competition with them, although it's amazing to see what they've done because they've really sort of proven the market, right? Like they're killing it. It's an, it's inspiring for me. And it's like, hey, this is something that people want. You know, this is something that people really want. Um, I like that. Uh, to, to pause you, I really like that perspective. I think most people would probably look at competition uh, in a way as, as literally that is competition. But I like how you look at it as, hey – you know, what is it? The rising tide raises all boats, right? Like they're carving out this market and now potential customers might look at other viable options uh, as my business, for example. Well, I mean, I had, a, I had early on in my career, I got the, the, the chance to sit down with uh, 
oh god what's his name uh richard uh was it richard or something shake uh the guy who created aubon pen and panera bread mm-hmm. company and he, he came down and sat with us at the meatball shop and at that time there was so many people opening up meatball restaurants after we had you know had super success there were meatball restaurants opening up all over the world it was crazy mm-hmm. and we asked him i said oh his name is ron shake and i said ron like you know what should we do about all this competition and he looked at me like i was like i had like nine heads and he said competition he said the second you waste worrying about what other people are doing is a second you're not focused on what you're doing mm-hmm. focus on what you've got in front of you don't worry about what anybody else does you're not going to change anything that they do and you can only change what you do and so i the only competition i really focus on is with myself you know mm-hmm. i um my grandmother who i've got a tattoo of right here was like the most inspiring person most um influential person in my life for me and when i was going through all that stuff with my father it was really hard and she was his mother mm-hmm. and i and and she and i would have i would talk with her about it and she would say honey you ain't going to change him you're not going to change him so what you should do is you should ask god to bless him and change you change the way you receive him and so i got a tattoo right here <laughs> that says, bless you, change me. And that's how I think about competition. I, I, I'm literally like, bless all of them and give me the courage and confidence to be the fucking best I can be, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that's how I kind of see competition in business, you know? Like, it's just, there, there's nothing I can do. They, they yeah. may have more money, they may have, better people. Um, but as long as I'm focused, if I, if I focus all of the energy on my business, that is where I'm going to get the best shot of success. Yeah. Well, you guys just hit, what was it two years yesterday or two, no, two days ago, right? Uh, the 27th. Yep. Yeah. So what has been, I guess, the central focus lately on scaling the business, getting these nuts or these next skews out, these iterations of the product, um, as you move towards year three, four, five, and so forth? Right now, it's about, um, well, we have product market fit, which is great. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Right now, it's about building a, a, a bit of a bigger team, focusing on build, building a, a, a bigger team, really enhancing our marketing department with a with a marketing lead, I've kind of been the head of marketing, uh, yeah. you know, from the beginning. The one-man band, as all entrepreneurs do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, we've got a great team, but but we're starting to. I'm starting to think about you know putting some some more players onto the team. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, we've got some cool stuff coming down the pipe. We're 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 introducing our new our new website. You know, we launched Nightcap a few months ago, very lightly, which is our sleep sleep support skew, and so we're going to start putting a lot of energy into Nightcap uh, mm-hmm. coming into the fall. And really, just sort of head down, trying to be as efficient as we can, trying to be, uh, ex- you know, get get as much exposure as we can, um, showing up at a few more events this year, and going into 2024, um, building out an affiliate team. So really, trying to get as many uh, awesome human beings that want to be a part of Creatures of Habit, um, mm-hmm. building out an affiliate community where 
you're hopefully going to be a part of it um, where we're, you know, have like some really incredible people that, yeah. that believe in what we're trying to do, you know, which is like better habits, better life. That's it. Like that mm. is it, right? Like <laughs> better habits, better life. And, um, you know, spreading the gospel of that is, is a big deal for us over the next 12 months. Um, so, you know, I'm not bringing on any new SKUs over the next 12 months. You know, we'll have a few things coming, you know, coming towards, towards later on in, in 2024, most likely. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's continuing to do, do what we're doing and, and getting better and better at that, the repetition of that building out our efficiencies, staying direct to consumer. We have no sort of plans on going into uh, retail or, or brick and mortar anytime soon. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just stay in the course and continuing to build what we've, what we've built. We have an amazing community of people. I mean, we, we've, we've, we've served millions of people so far. So it's, it's, it's pretty special. Yeah, I think that's the right plan of action. I think too many businesses, I guess, spread themselves too thin with too many SKUs, different flavors, different products, and they kind of lose what they're good at. Um, so I think that's the the wise approach. With being a businessman, being a family man, what are some of the protocols or stops you put in place to ensure that you do have that work-life balance, that you're spending the adequate time with your kids, that they're getting what they need from you, and that you know your wife is getting the assistance and the love and care that she needs as well? Time blocking has been a massive asset for me. I time block. Mm-hmm. So if I open up my, my phone or if you open up my phone, you look at my calendar, um, you know, it's chunked out in, in, in every single day of the week, seven days is chunked out time that I spend for myself, which tends to be between 5 a.m. and 630 in the morning is my time, my solo time. Everybody else is asleep. So it gives mm-hmm. me an hour and a half to just totally indulge in myself. Um, and then I'm with my family from 630 to about eight. I work for a few hours and then I go train. Um, I train for two hours a day typically and then I get back to work. I sit down, I work from 12 to 5.30 and that time is chunked out too from 12 to 3. It's like uninterrupted, no phone, no nothing uh, outside of this you know, podcast right now. <laughs> we make the um, exception. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously there's, there's a, you know, if, if there's an opportunity to do something cool like this, I do it. Um, but mm-hmm. typically between 12 and three, it's uninterrupted. And then between three and five thirty, that's when I'll take meetings and that's when I'll meet with people. And that's typically when I have my team calls and stuff like that. Um, and then from, from six o'clock on it's family time. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, obviously on the weekends, you know, I, I do not work after five thirty anymore. I don't do it ever. I, I very rarely, like if it's a, ne- if it's absolutely necessary, you know, I will, uh, turn the phone back on because I turn my phone off at six o'clock when I'm at home. Uh, mm-hmm. I will turn the phone back on at eight thirty um, just to make sure I didn't miss anything crazy. And if I if it's absolutely necessary for me to get something done, if I got a deadline, I'll work from eight thirty to nine thirty. But I'm in bed by nine thirty every night, so I get that adequate sleep, and uh, and and that has worked out really well for me. So time blocking is like crucial in my life. And then I reserve the weekends for my family. I don't work mm-hmm. on the weekends unless it's absolutely absolutely necessary. Um, I, I spend the time with my family every weekend. If I like my goal in life is to have the best experiences with my family. That's yeah. what, that's what I want to have is have a, have really amazing experiences with my family and friends and, uh, and the, and the work supports that, you know, um, the mm-hmm. work supports that. Yeah. It, it, I like that a lot. I've started to implement time blocking a lot more personally. 
Um, my kind of cutoff has been like six o'clock, but it's the same, same exact mindset. And one thing I kind of fall back on too, is you'd be surprised because a lot of times you think if I take this day off, if I block out this time, I'm not going to be able to get as much done. But, uh, the law, I believe I, I first heard it in like Tim Ferriss's four hour work week years ago was, I believe it's called Parkinson's law where it's like wherever or however much time you give yourself to complete a task you'll you'll complete it within that given block so if you give yourself four hours it'll take you four hours you give yourself two hours it'll take you two hours obviously that doesn't apply to every single thing but a lot of times especially with like the freelance video work i do for different clients i found if i get myself way too broad of a uh block of time to get something done i end up taking way longer than i should I procrastinate um slower at work whatever and i think giving yourself intensive bouts of work which you kind of space out as well in your day you're like okay i'm gonna work you know in the morning then i have a little bit of a break to work out then come back to it you're a lot more productive and efficient within those blocks of time uh so i think that's very practical as a father of two sons what are some of the principles or lessons do you hope to imprint upon them as they get older well i mean i'll tell you what we say what i say to them and what they repeat to me every night we've been doing this Mm -hmm. since they're born um Every night that I put them down, my wife and I go back and forth every other night. We put our sons, our kids down. And uh, value and, and, and um, values are very, very important to me. My father gave me three that really have helped shape my life that I've, I've now given to both of my sons. Uh, so like I would say that, you know, outside of the terrible relationship I had with my dad, there were three things that he instilled in me that really have helped shape the man I am today. But every night that um, my kids and I uh, go down and, you know, we, we go upstairs, we brush our teeth, we uh, take a piss, <laughs> we go into their room, they lie down, I read them two books, and then right after I read them two books, I say, all right, guys, give me the 13 things. And the 13 things are always protect your, always protect your brother, ladies always go first. Squeeze and eyes, which is when you meet somebody for the first time, you make eye contact and you give a firm handshake. So always protect your brother. Ladies always go first. Squeeze and eyes. Remember people's names. Lift up the toilet seat when you go to the bathroom. Put the (laughs) toilet seat down when you're done. Look Mm -hmm. to the left before crossing the road. Look to the right before crossing to the road. Kindness always wins. Always walk with courage. Be kind to mommy when daddy's away. Tell parents (laughs) and teachers if you're going to be away from their eyesight and I love you. And those are the 13 values that I believe will help my children be fantastic. And then right after they say that to me, mm-hmm. um, I say, dudes, you can be anything you want to be when you grow up and your dad's going to support you as long as you do it for yourself and nobody else. And then I say, what's it going to take? And they say, courage. And I say, what is courage? And they say, being afraid, but doing it anyway, as long as it's for the good. And that is what I hope my children will always remember. Because um, I remember that. They, they have it down to, to, uh, to, to a science. Yeah. And um, as they get older, I will start to explain a little bit more about always protect your brother. Ladies always go first. Squeeze and eyes, remember people's names. I mean, they're still a little young for that stuff. Yeah, but, but the foundation's there. They're never going to forget that. They're going to they're gonna have that for, for their... Because I've been doing it since they're born. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I sing Stand By Me. <laughs> and then, uh, a great we, rendition. Yeah, and then I hang out with them <laughs> for about 10 minutes and they pass out. And So values, you know, uh, I believe in chivalry. I don't care mm-hmm. what, what the 
world thinks of me for that. I believe that, you know, uh, respect for women in a, uh, in, 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 in a physical way, opening yeah. the door for women. I think there's uh to interject, I think there's like, there, there needs to be a, a sense of masculinity of traditional masculinity that is uh, value that is productive and what chivalry is one of those examples to where I don't think we need to, uh, you know, what is the phrase, throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Like there are some maybe old school things that we can, that are, that are uh, degenerative behavior that we can get rid of, right? But, but chivalry, we don't need to get rid of that. I think it, it is important to teach them to, uh, you know, women and children first, those kind of same pr principles, I think have immense value. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love the uh, answers about the fatherhood. I think that was actually much more than I even expected. If you know, and I put you on the spot, but but you were you came prepared. Little did I know. But uh, appreciate you coming on, Mike. Where can people find you and uh, Course Creatures of Habit? Yeah, you can find Creatures of Habit at Creatures of Habit with a K at Creatures of Habit on all social platforms. Uh, CreaturesofHabit.com is our website. You can find me anywhere at Michael Chernow. That's where I, I spend most of my time on Instagram and TikTok. Um, and podcast uh, as well, right? Podcast is a Creatures of Habit podcast. Um, it's a fun podcast where I get to sit down and talk to people about their habits. I've got to get you on there, Brock. Yeah, dude, I'll give you my whole routine. I'll have you hooked on uh, specialty coffee. <laughs> you have another obsession? Love it. Oh, yeah. Awesome, awesome dude. Guy. Yeah, well, I appreciate you guys listening. Make sure you uh, check out Mike and all the great uh, stuff that he's involved with. Share the show if you enjoyed it, and I'll catch you guys in the next one.